everybody. This is Armand DeMille with you with The Positive Mind. Here on WBAI 99.5 FM on your dial. Bringing you ideas, concepts, and guests to help you lead a more positively minded life. Just to pick up for a moment. Oh, we have so many things to bring to you today. In the upcoming days or the days yet to come. We're going to talk about why certain men and women cheat on their partners while others don't. We're going to talk about hindsight and the nature of hindsight. We're going to talk about your higher self and other subjects. But the one that I want to address right now is the one about uh, Prozac. Prozac is a funny kind of thing because we, if you are ever in a room with five people who take Prozac, you feel like you're in a strange atmosphere. It feels odd. And you can't really tell what's odd, but I think, Linda, you were the one who pointed out it's it's about the energy, right? Yes, Armand. What I see when people are taking Prozac, I'm when I'm with them, it feels almost like an animation, hmm. uh, something different. I can't say it's not like a caffeine nervousness or it's... Um, but there's like an animation. Everything they do is um, the way that they speak, the way they handle themselves. It's a, it's more than a jitteriness, but uh, sort of almost a caricature formation is what I see. Interesting concept. Now, that would mean that we're judging people who take Prozac, and I don't because I know an awful lot of people who have who are taking it and very satisfied with it. But there is something odd about it. You know, just this world is getting a little odd for me. Ever since Hurricane Sandy... Right? I saw an upheaval. I saw a change in the world. I saw a change in people. I was talking to real estate people today. Uh, one of the, one of the biggest real estate leaders in New York was telling me about the nature of people buying property nowadays and how it's completely shifted. That it's all different. There is nothing for sale. From having everything for sale and nobody could put down, now there's nothing for sale. Nothing is available. Strange world. Well, the Prozac world is a strange world. It's almost like having a group of people who are not here. They're here, but they're not all here. We're going to talk much more about that. This is Armand DeMille with you with a positive mind. Let's look at hindsight. 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 What does that mean? You know, the thing that you see after you see it, you look back and you say, I, I knew that. The guy in accounting who was secretly embezzling company funds and everybody knew it. The situation may be different each time, but we hear ourselves say it over and over again. I knew it all along. I knew he was cheating on her. I knew this was that. And I knew it. The problem is, too often, we actually don't know it all along. We only feel as if we did know it. So hindsight's an interesting phenomenon. It's not that you knew it all along, but once it happens, you convince yourself that you knew it all along. It's almost as if it could slip into a little pre-frame in your brain. You get this little, like, I knew she was going to have an accident. See, after somebody has an accident, I knew that was a dangerous thing. But it slips into some zone before your actual thought where you're convinced that you are um, 
that you knew this the whole time. The phenomenon, which they call hindsight bias, is one of the most widely studied decision traps and has been documented in various domains, including medical diagnosis, accounting, athletic competition, political strategy. In a recent article I was looking at in Perspectives on Psychological Science, they were exploring the various factors that make us so susceptible to the phenomena and identifying it in ways to help us combat it. Because the truth is, we want to believe that we knew it all along, but we didn't. We didn't know it. Do you ever feel like you had that, Julian? Do you ever feel like you were really sure you knew what was going to happen, and it happened? Is that a convincer? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely, I mean, I feel like that all the time. And then a lot of the time I, I do things because I don't want to have regretted not doing something or, like, not knowing it. So so there it is. And so, so you live that way, Linda, you were going to say? Yes, I was going to ask, when you were speaking about it, it's almost like when you said it's in the framework of your brain. What I felt, is it in a fearful place? That's right. Is it a f- place of dread? Oh, my goodness, I think this might happen or I think thought it would have happened. Well, now, I've known you a long time, and I could see lots of dread, right? You have, you have, had, uh, you, you have had a lot of cautions about people, worries about your daughters, your children, and so on and so forth. Rightfully so, but 99% of what you worry about doesn't happen. Correct. I have a good friend, Maddie. Maddie worries about people traveling a lot. 99% of the concerns don't happen. If something happened once, would it validate all the other times? What would be wonderful is if the missed hindsight eliminated the fear, but it doesn't. Now, the the researchers argue that certain factors fuel our tendency. Research shows that we selectively recall information that confirms what we know to be true And we try to create a narrative that makes sense out of the information we have. When it's easy to generate, we interpret that to mean that the outcome must have been foreseeable. Everybody likes a foreseeable outcome. Everybody thinks you should be able to guess in advance. Furthermore, you know, the research suggests that we have a need for closure that motivates us to see the world as orderly and predictable. So another factor here is this need to to close things, to say, oh, and it happened for a reason. Right, it was meant to be. There was a book called The Dice Man by Luke Reinhardt. Luke Reinhardt wrote this book called The Dice Man. It was a very interesting book, and in his book, he decided that he was going to live life at any given time by one of six choices. So he said at the beginning, I wake up in the morning, am I going to go to work? That's if that would be my first choice. Number two, will I stay in bed? Number three, will I go on vacation? Number four, and he picked six different scenarios. Will I leave home and never come back? And then he rolled the dice. And whatever the dice set, he followed. So let's say he decided to leave his family and go off to Africa. Then when he got to Africa, he would roll the dice again. Will I do this? Will I join a tribe? Will I go in? And he kept rolling the dice. And he let the dice guide his life. And it actually led to a fairly reasonable life. 
because everything was optional. As is with many of the things that we go through in life, many of the things we go through, it doesn't really make a decision which way you turn. It doesn't make a big difference which way you turn. Because if you're meant to turn in a proper direction, you'll wind up in that proper direction. Hindsight bias can make us overconfident in how certain we are about our own judgments. Research has shown, for example, that overconfident entrepreneurs are more likely to take on risky, ill-informed ventures that fail to produce a significant return on investments. So it is the people who believe they have a lot of good hindsight that fail the most in business. With our inclination to believe that we knew it all along is often harmless, it can have important consequences for the legal system, negligence, uh, product liability, medical malpractice, stuff that happens and people have to be, and, and, and technology makes it even worse. Paradoxically, the technology that provides us with simplified forms of understanding complex patterns may actually increase the hindsight bias. So what can we do about it? These two authors, Rose and Vaz, suggest that considering the opposite may be an effective way to get around our cognitive fault, at least in some cases. So let's say you consider the opposite. Let's say you know that your daughter is traveling to uh, Texas. And you're afraid that the, something's going to happen with the airplane. What these, what they said was every time you imagine something of poor consequence, actually picture something of positive consequence. All right, so she make it up. Well, um, for instance, if I was to see my daughter traveling, um, on a plane and I was concerned that, my goodness, could something happen to the plane? Um, on the other hand, I can say, um, maybe this is the trip of a lifetime. Maybe this is going to be someone she's going to meet on the plane, someone who she'll have a conversation with. Um, maybe that airplane will actually... Good. Take out the word maybe mm-hmm. and make it a fact. You're yes. good. Okay, mm-hmm. so she will meet someone on the plane. You see, because when you say the plane's going to crash, it feels as if it's really going to happen. So now take out the maybe, and she's going to be on this plane. She's going to make new friends. She's going to go somewhere. It's going to be successful. She's going to have a wonderful time. Now, if everything that we had in our mind was a concern, a serious concern, and we didn't have much choice around the negative one, would the addition of the positive one cancel it out? Well, according to these researchers, you could train yourself to do that. I don't know how you do that, because worry warts... They worry. It's almost like they need to worry. Hmm. Oh, if you have an opinion about this, I'd like to hear from you. Our telephone number is 212-957-2729. we got plenty to discuss with you today. 212-957-2729. <clears throat> Related to this is this thing about replacing bad habits with good habits. This is the science of habit management. Now, Linda, this is bad habits. What is a bad habit? A bad habit is something that it's a behavior um, that we participate in that we, um, it might be 
a reason because of our anxiety. It could be something coming out of somewhere, but we're not really happy with it, whether it be biting our nails, whether it be smoking, whether it be worrying. Um, they're habits that we form and we participate in, but we say, oh, I wish I could change it. All right. That's well said. So a bad habit doesn't make it evil, doesn't put judgment on it. It's a bad habit because I don't want to be doing it. I don't want to be smoking. I don't want to be overeating. I don't want to be compulsively doing anything. It's a bad habit, not by judgment, not by somebody saying you've sinned, but because I don't like it, because I don't like doing it. So, few things are more difficult than kicking a bad habit or developing more positive ones, but it's worth the effort. Bad habits like smoking, overeating, self-criticism, they shorten life, and they lead to underachievement, unsuccessful attempts to change them, lower self-esteem. Every time you try to beat a bad habit and you don't succeed, you feel worse about yourself. In contrast, good habits create a kind of successful autopilot. They lead to greater accomplishments with less thought and less effort. So how do you best eliminate bad habits and create good habits? That's a question. Worthy one, right? Research from this new field of ours called positive psychology has um, points to some successes that people have had, four proven techniques for successful habit management. Number one, if you have a bad habit, replace a bad habit with a good one. Now, this sounds simple, and it really is. Completely eliminating a habit is much harder than replacing it with a more productive habit. So let's say you smoke. You smoke and you, you don't smoke anymore. Right? That doesn't mean that it, it is not easy to do. Not easy to suddenly stop doing what you want to be doing because you have a compulsion to do it. Completely eliminating a habit is much harder. Studies of people who compulsively bite their fingernails have shown that it is very difficult for them to completely give up the habit. Much easier for them to do to substitute biting with the more productive habit of grooming their nails. Now, that doesn't make sense to me. Julian, help me out. Help me out. Can you imagine how grooming your nails is preferable to biting your nails? So, like every nails? time I want to bite my nails, instead I... Groom them? Groom them. I, I trim them with a nail clipper? Is that the idea? Maybe I would, I would say I'd probably like try chewing gum maybe or something that's a so, little A better. different thing. Yeah. I can't say it's an amazing habit, but it's it's something that I could chew on. Better instead. than the other. Oh, yeah. Better than just going having a manicure. So that makes no sense. Who are these doctors? What do they know? It's an expensive habit. What about you, Linda? What do you think? Well, I do know, for instance, um, I, in fact, I know personally people who, women maybe, uh, more so than men, who had a, a nail-biting habit and decided that they would have nails put on, the acrylic nails, and concentrate on 
improving their grooming of their nails so that it took that attention off uh, from biting a nervousness kind of a behavior that they were not happy with to a feeling that they were more attractive and they were prettier. So oh, interesting. They felt that they did use that wisely and were able what to What is that it. thing that you do with food, with eating? You do that yoga eating, stretching mouth thing. Yes. That? Describe that. I see that um, when people have, again, a compulsive need to overeat or eat, um, when in fact they're just bored. No, wait, wait, wait. Let's back that up. You can't do three things. When people have a compulsive eating, period, right, not overeat, but they're eating and they don't stop. Now, you have that. You have somebody who comes to you and says, I start eating, I start eating, and I can't stop. Mm-hmm. Right? I had a can of, uh, what was it the other day? Somebody sent me some corn. And there it was, corn off the cob, and it was in a container. And I said, oh, I'll just have one teaspoon. Right? It was a disaster. I mean, I looked at it, and it just it wouldn't have an end. Yes. What would interrupt that? A specific behavior, a specific exercise that I know of, by stretching your, your face, you open up your mouth wide and you almost like stress out your shoulders and your ears and you pull everything up into your face and you hold it for a couple well, of seconds. Well, let me seconds. do that right now. Hold on okay. a second. We're going to try it right here. So I feel myself wanting to eat, right? And I'm going to have some food in front of me. And instead, I, I bring up my shoulders and I stretch my face as mm-hmm. How far do you stretch it? Oh, as far as you can. It means mouth open, open up right? Now. <laughs> Stick your tongue out real far. <laughs> Hold it for a couple of seconds. Okay, now allow your shoulders to come down. Swallow. Huh. Relax. That's amazing. Your eyebrows. That's amazing. Linda, that's brilliant. Sure, it takes away all the tension. It's a great trick I want to teach you. Want to learn a trick? Yes. Here's a trick. If you imagine that, you could, that you're scratching the side of your tongue with a thorn, can you picture that? Mm-hmm. Can you picture you scratching the side, right? That, yeah. Okay, do that, but don't swallow. Imagine you're, you're scratching the side of your tongue with a thorn, but don't swallow. What do you know? <laughs> don't swallow. Don't swallow. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty uncomfortable. Pretty amazing, right? Pretty amazing. It, I feel it. Now swallow. This is what they used to do to cross the desert. They used to actually scratch their tongues with a thorn from a cactus or something. But something happened. But So we learned that even by imagining it, it's one of the ways of producing your own saliva. Uh. You produce saliva by imagining your tongue. With a th- I like Linda's way, too. I like this whole idea. Okay, so look. easier to replace compulsive talking with something else. And one of the suggestions is focused listening. Now, focused listening is a very interesting thing. It's where you beam into somebody when they're talking and you listen to them and you watch the words as they form them. You have to make it entertaining to yourself. But you'll find sometimes by watching people talk, you actually enjoy it more than talking yourself. Fascinating. Now, exercise. A habit of regular exercise is obviously important, 
but you do not realize that exercise helps in accomplishing a variety of goals and getting rid of a whole bunch of bad habits. And I don't have to tell you, but what was it about racing, about running, Linda? running, that they found that 80% of those who quit smoking and became a competitive runner, 80% were able to combat their smoking habit for, again, an adaptation of another activity, competitive yeah, running. running. Running is kind of amazing, right? Yes. Running does send you off. Okay, so reward success. The most fundamental law in all of psychology is the law of effect. It simply states that actions followed by rewards are strengthened and likely to recur. Unfortunately, studies show that people rarely use this technique when trying to change personal habits. So we need a reward. So let's say you go and you pass the bar. That sounds like something you do in law, right? You you didn't go into the bar, I meant. I meant the bar on the corner. Let's say instead of stopping for your drink normally, you don't go. You don't get your drink, right? It is very important that something follows that's positive. Something follows that's positive. And here's where your mate could make all the difference. Where you could be reinforced. If you're a child who doesn't do its normal habit, to have a parent who rewards the child in some way, not just by saying you're a good boy, but by some kind of reward. Rewards of positive Behaviors reinforce positive behaviors. There's actually a, um, a huge wave of like applications that are for lifestyle changes, like going to the gym. For example, there's an application where you every time you don't go, you have to pay five dollars to them, but every time you do go, you get paid a little bit of money, like forty cents, something like this. So if you go for a week, on the times you scheduled, you end up making a little bit of money, and it's not like a significant amount, but it's a reward. It's exactly based on it's, that. It's really successful, actually. Any other, any other uh, ones like that? Well, in in general, there's a lot of these uh, things that it, it kind of becomes like a game almost when you sure. when you when you start doing things uh, and you get this reward. It's like you get points. Like even sometimes it's the rewards that don't really mean anything. They can be like achievements, like you've done it ten times and you get like a little badge or something like this. A lot of these apps do this with with a point system, and you can compare the points with friends or something like that. Julian Joy, oh, you know, it's kind of interesting that what do they call credit cards? They call them rewards programs, right. right? Awards programs, flying awards. This is like the little extra you get, which works so well, and obviously it works. Dieters, for example, routinely overlook weeks of exercise and restrained eating, only to let a single lapse snowball into a total relapse. Setting up formal or informal rewards for success greatly increases your chance of transforming bad habits into good habits. So here's what you do. You schedule your bad habits. If you're trying, if you're, if you're really struggling to kick a bad habit, try limiting the habit to a specific time, a very specific time. If you're struggling to quit cigarettes, Allow yourself to smoke from 9 to 9.30 p.m. and only in the uncom- in an uncomfortable place. When the urge to smoke strikes, tell yourself that you still have plenty of time to smoke during your pre-scheduled uh, smoking period. Don't fool yourself too much. 
See, the part of us on the inside that doesn't like to be fooled is a part of us that says, I am willing to give this a try, but I don't want you to hurt me. So there is a part of us that doesn't want to change. It never wants to change. And if it does allow us to change, you got to keep friends with it. You can't fool yourself. You know, it would be like imagining that you're giving yourself something to drink. And uh, you're going to say, oh, I'm going to have some alcohol. And instead you put milk in your glass. Your mind doesn't like that. It gets angry with you. And when it gets angry with you, it'll send you more compulsively into your habits. This is Armand de Mille with you with a positive mind. Yoga. Linda, yoga. You're a master of yoga. It, the um, It must have a thousand variations for dealing with habits. It what does. was that pose that that man was doing with his arm and his leg around his arm? What was that oh, thing called? That was the crow. Yeah, that's a very oh powerful gosh, posture. Oh, my gosh, almighty. Yeah, that's a very powerful posture. We have in yoga many different ways to attend to habit formation. And as you're speaking, all I could think of is how when we speak about yoga, we speak about practice so that it's never, as you say, fooling yourself. Um, it's never competing with yourself, but knowing that with each day there'll come change and evolution and you will profit by the breathing however your body needs it. So yoga really, I think, um, allows us to um, distract ourselves from those compulsive habits by concentrating on keeping ourselves in balance with ourselves, so that there isn't that sense of need for control which I think habit formation... But there is that feel. See, see, the beauty of it is yoga is all about control. You know, it sounds like you're letting go of control, but it's all about control. I've watched you do yoga. You're, you're, you're controlling every inch, every part of your body, every, every space around you. It, Do you say it's it's not control? Well, it's uh, interesting that you say that because I think it's almost like um, a yin-yang, I guess. You know, you're surrendering control by maintaining your own control. So I think that as you look at the body and you send space into it and you stretch into different postures and allowing yourself to grow, you're allowing yourself to break through those places where you're stuck, which is what I see as habit formation. Um, things that keep us in a deliberate way, even though we may feel it's not very um, healthy or it's not really adaptation for us. So I think yoga on a daily practice helps us to eliminate and let go of those habits that, in fact, we may have accumulated that we no longer need. I think when we are doing, when we're doing compulsive things, by the way, this is Armand DeMille with you with a positive mind. We will take your calls after our break today which is 212-957-2729, Now, I think I have a different opinion. This is why you like my mind. I think compulsive behaviors like habits are not controlling behaviors. They're attempted to control something that you can't control because you're out of control. So I think what happens is you're out of control, you feel at loose ends, you grab a cigarette, you're trying to control the moment. You grab a sandwich, you're trying to control the moment. But these don't work. That's why you repeat them over and over again. And I think yoga is the, not the attempt, but the exercise of the ultimate control. So I think all you yoga people are control freaks. (laughs) 
And I know you would laugh at me saying that because it sounds like, oh, no, we let go. Kumbaya. Kumbaya nothing. You guys have got the muscle, the form, the shape. You have it under wraps. It's exquisite. I think it's like the one of the most beautiful forms of control that I've ever seen. So, um, so there is. Now I'll hear from the yoga people, I'm sure. They're going to come back and say, oh, no, we don't control because yoga people are afraid of anger usually. So they always try to deal with anger in some level. Now I'm getting in more trouble, right? <laughs> more trouble, more trouble, although I have such respect for the people who do this, especially if they're on 34th Street or 86th Street, mm -hmm. any of those folks. We, my friends, have got to take a short break. And when we take a short break, when we come back, we may be talking about infidelity. Whatever that means. You remember high fidelity? Do you know what that word means, Julian? Like high quality? No, high. it's great. He doesn't know what high fidelity means. It's incredible. <laughs> Music, it, it, records, mm -hmm. were, at first they were recorded in a thing called high fidelity. High fidelity meant hi-fi. You, There's a bar at, near my house called hi-fi. Yeah. That's what I... That's it. That's, you're looking at me blankly like you've never heard of this. It's wonderful. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back, my friends. Hey there, friends. This is Armand DeMille with you with The Positive Mind. Help us with our recovery. Go to WBAI.org and help us by joining the buddy system. The more people we have on a recurrent basis giving money to the station, the less we'll have to have fun drives. Help us cut down on those and we'll do what we can for you. WBAI.org, buddy, make a difference.
comes to my attention a little bit of work I did a long time ago, which I think I'll describe to you. For a period of time back in the 90s, my specialization was multiple personality dysfunction. Now, that meant people with many personalities all combined into one person. So I would have one person that I would treat, and in this one case I could think of, she had different eyesights. So she used different prescriptions for her glasses. In one personality, she had one one pair of glasses, and another pair, she had another pair of glasses, and another one, she had another pair. She, was, she had different physical selves. She had different uh, clothing that she wore. And she had different immunities. So it's almost like the body is built to be a multiple of bodies, and it wound up being only one. And then the person, of course, is very upset because there's one part that's very depressed. And there's a part of this personality that believes if it just killed off all the other parts, it would live. So as a therapist, you're dealing with what looks like suicide, but it's really homicide. It's very difficult work. It's work where I have to talk to each person one at a time. One would be a murderous Another would be uh, a child. Another would be um, somebody who's an executive. And I did this work for years. I taught it. I supervised. But part of what made it possible for me to do this work was having some tools. And one of the tools that I had was a form of hypnosis. Hypnosis was important because with the multiple personality... Um, you were able to catch them in between their personalities. You would catch them in between and you would be able to talk to them. You would be able to talk to the in-between. And how you would do that is by addressing what's called the higher self. We called it the inner self-helper, but it was also the higher self. What is the higher self? We all think we have a higher self. You think you have one part of you that is higher than every other part of you, right? I mean, you think you have one part of you that's really, really conscious and aware. But very often, that part of you is not conscious and aware. It's just a manifestation of your superego. It's just you feeling like you know the difference between good and bad, and you're just being good. So you think, for example, my higher self is a part of me that prays. No. No, no. The higher self is you. It's you in the ethers. I'm going to try to describe this better. Your higher self is the real you, but it's a total soul consciousness. The you that's living here on earth is just a projection of the consciousness of your higher self. This is hard to say. Your higher self is more is the more complete you. The one that isn't being frustrated by the veil that draws down upon us when we incarnate and causes us to forget where we come from. The higher self is the one in possession of your spiritual contract, the plan you made for yourself before you were became human. What is your higher self? Your higher self has the instruction manual and your life plan is in their hands. Wouldn't you like to speak to your higher self? 
Well, one of the gifts that I had was I was able to speak to the higher selves and I would have the higher self talk to the protagonist if it were possible and that was the cure. Let's call your, your higher self HS. Neither male or female. But for the purpose of this, you probably want to identify it in a current gender. So usually if you're a woman, you'll say your higher self is a woman. Your higher self resides in the ether, but is still quite connected to you. Nothing can break the connection. It has access to your thoughts, your goals, your intentions, everything you're thinking, feeling, and wondering. It sees and knows everything. So one of our images of God is that God sees and knows and understands everything. Your higher self is God. I'm not saying there's not another God beyond that, but that's the feeling. You have a self that sees you and knows you. There's a conduit that goes directly between you here on earth and this higher self, which is somewhere above you. Now, what's the role of the higher self? By the way, we, as we're discussing this, let me give out our phone number. This is worthy of calls or email. And I understand that a lot of people have sent me emails because they didn't want to be uh, public. So you can always send an email to armand at thepositivemind.com, A-R-M-A-N-D. Or you could call in at 212-957-2729. And we may have something wrong with our phones today. You got a phone there? Dead? No dial tone? Huh. Sorry if you're calling in. All right, let's continue with this. So your higher self is watching over and helping you steer in the direction you intended to go when you created your life plan, but stuff gets in the way. Your higher self knows where you're supposed to be, who you're supposed to meet, and when. Your higher self knows what's good for you and what's not good for you. It may know, but I found that it had some mistakes. It made some mistakes. Part of the mistakes that it made were things about the body that it doesn't know that are not familiar. But it is a part of you that watches over you. Now, I believe we have another part of us called the engineer. The engineer is, is about getting your physical body to stay alive. That's all it cares about. That's all it cares about is you staying alive. The higher self wants you to stay alive and to be vibrant and to be a part of the universe. That's quite a distinction, don't you think? The higher self gets all of your guides together, explains the plan and how they'll be able to help you, and then prepares you to be here on this earth doing whatever work you do. It keeps an ethereal connection. I wonder if you had a bigger connection with your higher self, if it wouldn't um, be a problem, why would you want to be here? Just playing this while I do an engineering thing. Hold on. 
Hey, friends, so our phones are out of whack, unfortunately. I see you're trying to call, but you can't get through to us. But we'll we'll correct this by uh, the next time we're on with you. So how do you reconnect? So, so, so here's the deal. If the deal is when you're born, you have to make a decision somewhere. You say either I'm going to stay with my higher self, in which case you probably die right there on the spot. I think that's what crib death is. I think crib death is a decision made by an infant to not take this journey. And one of the ways that crib death happens a lot is when a child is not touched. You know, they found in foundling hospitals, if, if a child has not been picked up and touched and nurtured, the child has a higher incidence of crib death than if they are touched and nurtured. So maybe if you're touched and nurtured, you make a deal to yourself and you say, it's nice to be touched. I think I'll stay on the planet. And I think what happens with the... In other cases, you say it's not so nice. If I'm not being touched, so I'm going to leave. Now, this leads us all the way down to line to what happens to people as they get older. Because when people get older, you know, they're no longer touched. People don't touch them. People don't put their hands on them. I beg you all to touch the elders. Put your hands on them, touch them, massage them, just even, not even massage, just touch, make contact. There is something that seems to be among the youth that has an aversion to touching the elderly. It's almost as if you're going to get old doing it or something, or there's something wrong, but it's the biggest gift you could give. It's a wonderful gift. A hand on a shoulder, a hand on an arm, it makes that person feel like they're part of this planet. Because if not, there's an invitation for them waiting. And that invitation that's waiting is this other self saying, come on, we'll get rid of this. We'll, we don't have to be a part of this. Now, of course, by the time you get to that point in life, you're usually pretty miserable. You're pretty unhappy. So what we want to do is re reconnect with our higher self while we're still here. So the first thing you have to do is to listen to your higher self. It seems like intuition. Sometimes it sounds like the voice of your mother warning you not to play ball in the house. Sometimes it sounds like the voice of reason or justice or mercy or compassion. Sometimes your higher self says, he's hot, we want to marry him. If you're aware, you could probably discern the voice of your higher self versus the voice of your ego which is usually fear-based. So one of your voices, one of your compulsive voices is usually fear-based, and then another one is free of fear. The higher self is free of fear. If hearing isn't your thing, try seeing your higher self. My method is to imagine going into a garden, seeing a stone bench and requesting that my higher self sit with me and talk to me. And I have these conversations frequently. And it's a beautiful thing because it means that I could at least be in contact with me. As Joan of Arc once said, well, how else would God speak to me if not through my imagination? By the way, you can tell when you're speaking with your higher self instead of your own ego is by the answers your higher self gives you. 
When the answers to the question you're starting to ask start to sound wiser and more knowledgeable than you usually do, you're probably talking to your better self. Now, wiser doesn't mean get away from the guy, leave him alone, don't go near him. Insights into your current situation, advice seems sound, it's probably your better self talking. The part of you that says, but I can't, that's okay too. There's a part of you that says, I see who I am, I see what I need to do, but I can't do it. That's all right. Keep both working because your higher self will also work along with you without judging you. If you feel judged by your higher self, then it's not your higher self. Then we're talking about your lower self again. Then we're talking about what's what's called a superego, which is your parents criticizing you for being who you are. This is Armand DeMille with you with The Positive Mind. Uh, we were talking, we're talking today about this development of the higher self and what that is. Is there such a thing? Yes, I believe there is. There's a higher consciousness. Just keep talking to this manifestation of your higher self until it feels like you're talking to someone else and the answers you're getting don't seem like they're coming from your own head. It could take time. It could take practice. Nowadays, you can get away with it very easily because when I walk down the street, I see people talking on cell phones. When I was a kid, if anybody was talking out loud when walking down the street, they usually were going to be hospitalized. Nowadays, since everybody does it, maybe you could connect with your higher self by cell phone. Maybe it's a speed dial number, you know? Hey, let's get Super Julian. Another method to reach your higher self is through journaling. Using journaling software or just even a Microsoft Word document, type up a question. Listen for an answer and type it. Now, it, it's sometimes the question itself represents the voyage. So, for example, if you say to yourself, how would I be most happy? You don't have to have an answer to that question of how I would be most happy. All you need is the question. Because as you ask that question, like, for example, right now, how would I be at peace? Well, if you ask that question right now, you could slide into it. Try to slide there. Go there. Go there. Go there. Slide in. You may feel real nervous, but try and exhale and see where it takes you. Is it that available? Go deeper because before long you'll notice a shift in the answers you're getting. Sh nervousness does not lead access to the higher self. It's unfortunate that the nervousness just takes you to a counterproductive way of dealing with the nervousness. So if you're going to do things to get away from your nervousness, you're going to have a drink, you're going to do something, take a pill, that's one way out. But the real way that we're looking for is for you to connect with this other part of you Back to yoga. You know, Linda, back to yoga. Yeah, yeah. More and more as you're speaking, I feel, you know, we would say in yoga, stay on the mat, stay in the present. That's very, very important because it's all in the breath. And the breath, so whether we call it control or higher self, but the breath is what brings us to the higher self. We are one with that, and we allow ourselves to let go of whatever else doesn't serve us, as we call it in yoga. So, 
Sometimes clearing the mind is the access point. And sometimes clearing the mind gets through clearing the body. And then listening beyond that. Listening. Listening. So using a journaling software is very helpful. In the beginning, you may wind up talking to your ego, which is very often you talk to this pride self, but go deeper. Because before long, you'll notice a shift in the answers you're getting. They won't seem like they're coming from you. Don't filter them. Just type what you hear. Play meditative music in the background while you're doing this, which will help you raise your vibration. If you can manage a lucid dream, these are excellent vehicles for reaching the higher self. The next time you find yourself in a lucid dream, ask your higher self to appear and have a conversation. What does a lucid dream look like? Do you know lucid dreams? Yeah, it's when you when you become aware of your, your sleep state and then kind of live in the dream world while being somewhat awake. Right. And being able to control everything, which is awesome. It's so You fun. like it? Oh, it's so fun, yeah. One day I had a dream that I had a dream that I was dreaming. Get that down three layers. Just try to get oh, the yeah. way that feels. I had a dream that I was dreaming that I was dreaming. It was wonderful. Isn't it? I was on three different levels of it. Okay, so so lucid dreaming. Now, this is if you if you want to know lucid dreaming, I've known people who have taken L-tryptophan, right, and they or they eat turkey and they go to sleep. But before you fall asleep, don't fall asleep. Stay up consciously, and you get this experience of the lucid dream. A lot of research is done on lucid dreaming. What does your higher self look like? Your higher self looks exactly like you or an older version of you or a wise man or a Greek goddess, whatever. Whatever your higher self looks like isn't important as long as you feel the energy is that of your higher self, the ultimate guide. It's your ultimate guide because he knows that he knows you intimately more than even the angels or your spirit guides because your higher self is you. Well, my friends, you got to make a date with your higher self. Once you've reconnected with your higher self, speak to him or her often. Sometimes if I haven't checked in with my higher self in a while, I'll start getting signs that he wants to tell me something, sort of like a spiritual you've got mail. And it usually manifests as an ache in my body. Usually it's an illness or an ache, and I keep feeling it, and I'm saying, you know, somebody's trying to contact me. And you, one of the things about illness that are beautiful is that it forces you to stay still. It forces you sometimes to lay down and just lay down with yourself. And I think sometimes that's part of what we need to do, just to be with ourselves. This is Armand Mill with you with The Positive Mind. Next week when we get together, we will talk about infidelity. Uh, I am going to be going now. I thank you very much. Sorry about the telephones. We will fix this. You can reach me at uh, Armand at thepositivemind.com. Bye-bye for now, friends.
it out, y'all. This is Freddie Sheffield. You listen to the WBAI 99.5 FM, New York, New York. Listen to sponsored Free Speech Radio. Come on out every first Monday and check out Two Raw for Radio Comedy Experience. We got a reception that goes down at 6.30 p.m. and 8 p.m. is showtime. Tickets and info is available at www.wbai.org. And the place to be is the WBAI headquarters located at 388 Atlantic Avenue. Brooklyn, New York. See you there. Hey there, friends. This is Armand DeMille with you with The Positive Mind. Help us with our recovery. Go to WBAI.org and help us by joining the buddy system. The more people we have on a recurrent basis giving money to the station, the less we'll have to have fund drives. Help us cut down on those and we'll do what we can for you. WBAI.org. Buddy. Make a difference. Things of which I'm most proud, it really has to be, um, would be um, Nelson Mandela coming here uh, to, to New York and what we were able to do, this city, when I was mayor, in helping to end apartheid. A special event honoring former mayor David Dinkins for his public service will take place on Thursday, April 3rd at 6 p.m. The First Lady Cherry Ann McRae, Randy Levine, Harry Belafonte, and other luminaries will pay tribute. That's April 3rd, 6 p.m. at the New York Society for Ethical Culture. For ticket information, go to this is a test N the emergency alert system. The broadcasters of your area Hi, this is Deidre Shu and Michael Beach Nichols, co-directors of Flex is Kings. Join us at 7 p.m. this Friday, April 4th, for a screening of our documentary, Flex is Kings, at the Village East Cinema, 189 East 2nd Avenue in Manhattan. Flex is Kings documents the hopes and realities of the underacknowledged and totally unfunded group of Brooklyn artists behind the urban dance movement called Flexing. After the screening, Artsy Farsi show host Barika Edwards will moderate a Q&A with co-directors Deidre Shu and Michael Beach Nichols and the dancers. So we'll see you this Friday, April 4th at the Village East Cinema. For more info, visit streetdancebrooklyn.com or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash flexiskings. And the previous program was The Positive Mind with Armand DeMille. You can listen to Armand and his wisdom every Tuesday and Wednesday at 1 p.m. here on WBAI. Coming up next is The Real World with Mike Sargent, followed by Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott at... 3 p.m. Letters in Politics with Mitch Jesrich at 4 p.m. And once again, this is all heard here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, WBAI.org on the web. Listener-sponsored community radio since 1960. And um, and uh, for those people who don't know, what's playing under me is T Plays It Cool. And it's been, and it was composed and written by...